0: Computer this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director, Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning, welcome. Snowy cold day here in Kamloops. We have a packed show for you. Later we'll set the stage for a new round of bargaining between the province and BC Teachers Union with BC Board Chair Alan But First, we got a lot to talk about with the panel this morning. Pleasure to welcome, as always, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Suns, Yvonne Palmer. Good morning, guys. Good morning, and
2: good
1: morning to Kamloops. <laughs> Everybody else. Yeah. Uh, guys, let's begin with the latest twists and explosive allegations from Speaker Daryl Plekis. Uh, he and Alan Mullen been doing the media rounds over the last day or so. All this, of course, in the legislature spending controversy. Keith, according to Mr. Plekis, elected officials knew what was going on. They did nothing, and some unnamed MLAs broke the law. Alan Mullen even adding, people are going to jail. What do you make of all this? Oh,
3: man, I don't know what to make of it. It's it's absolutely wild. You've got the speaker now basically uh, putting the entire legislature under a very, very dark cloud. He won't name names, and he's MLAs the law. So, which MLA? Uh, You know, is it a sitting MLA, a former MLA? He won't go into details. Uh, Alan Mullen saying people are going to go to jail. Um, These two guys are, you know, they're out there making uh allegations uh as aspersions and all sorts of things. No way to fact-check some of this stuff. It's uh, The whole question now is for David Eby, is a special prosecutor now been appointed uh, looking into any allegations against an MLA? I mean, it's an extraordinary situation. Uh, I've talked to members on both sides of the House who are just flabbergasted that he would say something like this. Uh, and, and, you know, the NDP is quite happy to have him as Speaker. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think everybody in that House is very worried at a Speaker about a a speaker who's behaving in this matter, making allegations without anything to support them. I mean, Darrell Black is obviously thinks something's going on, but he doesn't supply the information, the detailed information to support his charges of criminality, which is an extraordinary charge to make. And again, it puts every single MLA in that house under a, a very, very dark cloud, and it's very troubling.
1: Yeah, and with respect, I mean, Mr. Plekis and Mr. Mullen have brought forward some uh, some good stuff as far as exposing something and causing a reaction, which I think is good. I still question their knowledge of what is working internally within an existing RCMP investigation, Vaughn.
2: Yeah, you're right about one thing. Um, they, uh, I and others greeted their initial allegations last fall with much skepticism in my case and it turned out they did have something and because of that you have to give them some benefit of the doubt in their their latest round of allegations that well there may be something there as well but to get to what Keith just raised, look, the Speaker speaks for the members of the House. The Speaker represents them. That's why the institution and the office exists. And the Speaker has now told us that he says, expecting to hear from the police on all this uh, in March, criminal charges, he says, in his opinion, he is criminologist, that... Elected members have broken the law, and his chief of staff says, from what he's seen, people are going to go to jail. These are pretty serious stuff, and I think there needs to be a statement of clarification today from the Assistant Deputy Attorney General of Criminal Justice who is in charge of special prosecutions and or from the RCMP and or from the two special prosecutors in this case, are any sitting MLAs under criminal investigation? If they are, are there special prosecutors? And then I think we have to look to the House sitting with however many members there are under a cloud. I, I, this is this is serious stuff, and I don't think it can be allowed to drift that the House starts sitting next week with us knowing or not knowing whether or not some members are under investigation, whether there are special prosecutors, uh, whether there are charges coming. Um, <clears throat> the, the public's entitled to know some of this. In the past, when we've asked point blank, is there a special prosecutor dealing with such and such a member, we've been told yes or no. They will respond to direct questions. So I think those two Direct questions have to be asked today.
3: Yeah, he's interesting. He's actually put, you know, even by refusing to name an MLA, he's actually put Premier John Horgan under a cloud here. (laughs) Not differentiate between. Any MLA. He says MLAs are guilty of, of criminal conduct. Does that mean John Horgan is? Does that mean Andrew Wilkinson is? Does that mean Andrew Weaver is? Uh, it's an extraordinary situation. And I totally agree with Vaughn. There has to be a clearing of the air here because uh, uh, it's, it's almost. Well, it, it's it's unprecedented to be mm-hmm. in this situation. But ev-
2: the thing to remember here is that from the initial Plekus report, yeah, virtually everything in the initial Blacklis report is recent. The wood splitter is recent. It was purchased while John Horgan was premier of British yeah. Columbia and Darryl Blacklis was speaker. Uh, all of this, all of the allegations we've had him 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 so far, go back basically to about a month before the election in uh, 2017. So if he He has evidence of criminal wrongdoing or looking the other way by MLAs on all this, Um, he's put the cloud over the head of most of the current members. It's not, you know, there may be retrospective evidence as well. It goes back to previous terms. That should be clarified as well. If he's talking about former MLAs, that isn't as much it's a problem for them, but it isn't as much of a problem for the current House. But, again, if if he says that the Legislative Assembly Management Committee was looking the other way at stuff, well, who was a member of that committee for a long time? John Horgan. He did raise some concerns there, but nevertheless, you've got the insinuation here that current members of the legislature are implicated in criminal wrongdoing.
1: Yeah, and keep in mind, we don't know what the RCMP are doing. Uh, We don't know uh, some of the material that that The Speaker and Mr. Mullen passed off to them. We're dealing with the information that we know. And in the middle of all of this kerfuffle, uh, Craig James and Gary Lenz have submitted their defense in writing to Lamsey. I don't know if you guys have seen the bulk of that or not. Uh, I saw that uh, Richard Zussman tweeted out some sort of statements referring to the defense, saying we've submitted them, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Keith, any any word yet on the substance of those defenses or no? No, they just
3: released a... very brief statement, both of them, uh, saying they they're totally innocent, um, and they invite uh, they ask the the c committee to uh, make public their their uh, uh, responses. I'm not sure why they can't make those responses public themselves. They said they were going to re- reply on a sort of line by line. Uh, refuting everything in that report, but that report right now is in the hands of uh, Mike Farnworth and Mary Polak, the two House leaders, and Sonia Personel, the of the Green Party. Uh, they, I talked to Polak and Farnworth yesterday. They both said they've now just basically going to send this to the lawyers. Uh, they both said that this is basically now an employment situation where where a process kicks in, uh, human resources. Uh, um, a process that affects when you know when people are on the job are accused of something and they respond uh... and that's where it is so the lawyers right now are going to have this stuff and i'm not sure if this stuff's ever going to be made public in any in any short time frame, but uh, presumably Lenz and James can make it public, but right now they're asking Lamsey to make it public, and, and it's not going to It's not going to happen. It's going to go to the lawyers.
1: And on that note, Vaughn, I, I note in reading what they did put out in referring to those written defences that of the two, uh, Mr. Lenz mentioned that he still wants his job back. Mr. James made no such claim, which I thought was an interesting aspect of the two.
2: Yeah, it is an interesting aspect, and when you read Lenz's um, um, statement it he is more agitated and overwrought than james uh luck what these guys have been through on a personal level is obviously wrenching uh, and you know they talk about the damage to their families and their reputations and careers and all that speaks for itself but we also know from past experience that uh, these can be a prelude to uh, suits for defamation or wrongful dismissal there may be legal action arising out of this um... in terms of them asking the legislative assembly management committee to release these Um, The process for the Plekus report was just that. Plekis gave them uh, advanced copies, the members of the committee, of his report on a Friday. They reviewed them over the weekend. They had legal opinions on whether or not the report could be made public, and it was made public. So if the treatment were going to be the same here, then what you might get is, is what Keith suggests the report goes to lawyers and uh, the lawyers decide whether or not it can be released. And it's released. And you may, uh, I suppose, get an intervention by a special prosecutor saying, please don't. Um, There are other ways this can play out. And there is the human resources employee aspect of this. Ever since the awful case of the health firings, there is more protection for people in the public service from uh, simply being fired, uh, from being confronted with accusations, being given a fair chance. Because the legislature is a world unto itself, we don't know how that will apply in this case. But there are three or four different ways this could go legally, and so we're left to speculate once again.
1: And uh, in all of this, what would have been huge news in and of itself, uh, and an example of how slow government can work and how insanely fast it can work, uh, depending on how it's prodded, uh, earlier this week, Mike Farnworth, of course, saying, okay, uh, we're doing this thing, we're going to move towards more Transparency. We're going to act. Uh, we're going to open up the legislature to freedom of information requests uh, and make some other moves as well. Keith, uh, how big is this, thing, is this thing?
3: Oh, I think it's a significant step forward, and it sometimes takes a, a huge. Handle controversy like this to enact change. So, yeah, the the, the legislature always been this, um, you know, bound by high bound tradition uh, that is above the law, is beyond scrutiny. Uh, it's you know back to the days of Gladstone and Israeli that the legislature is somehow uh, immune from open transparency and, and modern laws of uh, when it comes to accounting. Uh, so it's a good move, um, I'll, you know. It's going to take some time for this to, to come into uh, into public view, but there will probably be some legislation this spring that brings the legislature more into uh, accountability and transparency with freedom information laws and such. I, my view, and I think Bond's view as well, is forget FOI. Just put everything in public. Just post all the stuff, all the spending, all the expenses, everything in public, and put it online. And once you do that, I think it ceases to be an issue with with the public. It's when things are kept in, you know, hidden envelopes and and such, that's when when, um, suspicions mount. I mean, years ago, when I started here, uh, we had no idea about uh, M- MLA's personal financial holdings, and that was always a big deal when someone found out about that an MLA, a cabinet minister, owns something, and suddenly that became a conflict of interest and such. Mm. Since then, we put all their holdings have been in public view. Uh, it's on file in the clerk's office. The, uh, there's a conflict of, of, of interest commissioner who side, decides on these things. We haven't had a story or an issue about a, MLA's financial holdings in like 25 years because this is in public view. Once it's in public view, it ceases to become an issue. And I think the legislature is just way behind the times, and thankfully this it, the Pleca situation, at the very least, has delivered one good thing, and that's making all this stuff public.
1: Absolutely. Uh, last word to you, Vaughn. It's one thing to say we're doing FOI. It's another to see the finite details of how it works. Uh, devil in the details case, yeah?
0: Yeah, Although
2: well, you know, I think Keith's right. I mean, post it all, uh, FOI is nice. There is a backstop and people will use it, but uh, a routine disclosure for MLA's cabinet ministers. The Speaker himself is subject to routine disclosure of his travel spending and his constituency spending. It's all there on, on the record. You can look at it every quarter. Uh, obviously, for legislature officials, travel, uh, these committee junkets, all that, that should be public as well automatically. We shouldn't have to file an FOI request every time we want to know how much they spent going to Hong Kong to sign some kind of memorandum of understanding.
1: All right, we'll take a quick break here in Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll continue our conversation with Keith and Vaughn, turning our attention to BC Hydro.
0: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL.
1: Well, Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, uh, interesting a little sneak peek from the Auditor General this week. Uh, looking at those hydro deferral accounts, uh, we talk a lot about ICBC imposing sort of a financial risk to this province. BC Hydro is still lurking out there. Vaughn, $5.5 billion in those deferral accounts. As you mentioned in your column earlier this week, $1.3 billion of those with no retirement plan whatsoever.
2: Yeah, the way that you deal with Deferral accounts. Essentially, this is current spending that is put off for some cases years, some cases decades to be paid back, but eventually it has to get paid back by either a bailout by taxpayers from the provincial government or you raise hydro rates, and the Auditor General is saying, telling us, Carol Bellringer, that some progress has been made, There, there is a plan to deal with some of these deferrals, but there's still more to be done, and she says that because of the complexity of the situation and the lack of independence that we've had for the Utilities Commission for a long time, the regulator, rates are going to go up, but we don't know how much they're going to go up, and we don't know who's going to pay, so coming toward us a rate increases uh, unspecified um, that could be quite significant she estimates that for every residential customer these deferrals equate to about on your hydro bill. So by deferring spending to the future and to be paid back in the future, hydro has been able to artificially hold down rates. But one of these days that gap has to be closed and she's not saying that's what will be done. She's saying that for example, the relief, the tax relief, the deferrals represent about $1,300 on your residential hydro bill.
1: Mm. So essentially here the Liberals kept rates artificially low by using the deferral accounts. Now we're into sort of a minefield as far as taxpayer reaction. Uh, Keith, what options are on the table here to deal with this whole thing?
3: Well, there's not there's not many. I mean, the NDP last uh, year, last fiscal or this current fiscal year, paid down 950 million dollars of uh, this debt, and that may have to be what what's going to happen each and every year until the until this amount of money is retired. Uh, the NDP also tried to freeze hydro rates, and the BC Utilities Commission said no, you can't do that because it's that, just not supported by the economics of BC Hydro. You also factor in that Site C now is still not on the books, and that's going to put even more more pressure on BC Hydro's bottom line. The problem the NDP faces, or any government will face, is if too much monkey, monkey business goes on BC Hydro's books. Moody's and other bond rating agencies start to take, and they've already flagged this as an issue, uh, start taking a very hard look at this. And if that results in a, in a um, decline in the credit rating, that has enormous implications for the government's overall bottom line. So this is a precarious situation for the government that uh, it has to start... Making aggressive moves to reduce those deferral accounts. On the other hand, hydro rate increases are politically unpalatable. I mean, all I mean, the NDP in the 90s froze rates for five years because it was politically supportable. Uh, now you can't really do that because hydro's uh, uh, financial situation is so delicate that a freeze is out of the question. But at an exorbitant rate in hydro rates is political suicide. So the government's in a real tough line here. I think they've got to keep retiring that that uh, that debt 5.5 billion right now, they've got to probably take a whack at it um, uh, every year. It was $950 million this year, probably have to be another $950 million next year, but a uh, hydro rate increase of 10 or 15% is just uh, political suicide for the government, which means debt retirement is the option rather than an uh, exorbitant rate hike.
1: Vaughn, uh, what's going to be the, the role in the future here of the BC Utilities Commission? You sort of hinted at it uh, earlier this week.
3: Yeah, so the, the other thing that's
2: interesting in Bellringer's report Is that she's got an appendix at the back of all the cabinet orders, regulations, and directives that the Liberals issued to basically cut the regulator, BC Utilities Commission, out of the process. They basically tied their hands, forced them to approve hydro uh, rates that the government wanted, not that were sustainable. Ignore the deferral accounts. Pay no attention to all this stuff we're doing. And the new Democrats came into office and said we're going to restore the independence of the Utilities Commission, which is a good decision in public policy but what that means when the commission is back and independent is they may say last year we saw the first prelude of it no no you can't freeze hydro rates they're not sustainable they may come along and say these deferral accounts are too much of a mess you're going to have to increase rates to deal with them so As long, I mean, to be not too cynical about it politically, it's similar to the situation with ICBC. As long as the new government can legitimately blame the problem on its predecessor, which it can for a while, they can increase rates in order to, to clean up the mess. But eventually, people are going to start noticing that their insur- auto insurance rates are higher and their hydro rates are higher, and they're going to start blaming the current government. So you can get away with it for a while, uh, but you can't necessarily get away with it forever. Eventually, you're going to take the political heat for what needs to happen, which is higher auto insurance rates and higher hydro rates.
1: Uh, last word to you, Keith. The Auditor General is going to come in and take over the books at hydro, and we also have this... A uh, deep dive from the Ministry of Finance into the utility as well, which we haven't seen yet. So two major components still in the future here.
3: Well, we've had a review of hydro in the past, and nothing really came of that. Um, I think this one might be a little different, but you know, front of all these jokes, uh, hydro runs the government. The government doesn't run hydro, and hydro is such a hugely an uber powerful uh, corporation. It's in everybody's life, and uh, it's it's amazing that no government really can get their heads around the fact that they don't, at the end of the day, have enormous control over BC Hydro. BC Hydro is so vast and so penetrable on so many levels, it really controls the government. So I'll be surprised if it leads to huge changes in the in the in the current situation. And uh, and Vaughn's right. The longer this this sort of festers on on the NDP's watch, the more the NDP takes the blame for this and not the B.C. Liberals.
1: Okay, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, and we're going to move from one fiscal minefield to another, ICBC, and more conversations with Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on the other side here in Inside Politics.
0: Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Camloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Guys, oh man, oh man. ICBC is just a disaster, hemorrhaging more money, uh, now on track to lose $1.18 billion in the 2018 19 fiscal year. Uh, same as what we were talking about just minutes ago, just a minefield, as is BC Hydro. Uh, EB's promising more changes, uh, changes rather, to address legal administration in the days to come. Uh, Keith, <laughs> what do they do here? This is unbelievable.
3: Well, it is, uh, and I don't think Evie can wait for April 1st to begin to come here fast enough because that's when the changes will take effect. And basically, the big changes are going to be on the litigation front, and I think he's attributing the big spike in, in losses right now uh, to the fact that uh, lawyers are settling uh, cases, uh, you know, accident claims right now, uh, as fast as possible at uh, at high rates because... The settlement costs will be significantly lower after April first. It's going to be a, a something like fifty-five hundred for for soft tissue injuries. Right now, they're running you know twenty thousand dollars for for claims. So a bunch of claims are being settled very quickly. As lawyer, as according to the EV and and the government, as the lawyers try to make uh, you know as, as much money as they can before April first. This will ultimately end up in court. The trial lawyers have already served notice that uh, uh, the injury lawyers have served notice they're going to take this to court. They may very well win in court uh, on this, so it, it's uh, April 1st is a deadline for for lower costs. It may not be sus- sustained by a court decision. We'll see about that in the months ahead, but uh, no, this is a very situa- very serious situation financially. The the actual uh, accident rate is actually uh, suddenly become stabilized. We're not, we're not seeing the 20% spike in accidents uh, that we've seen the last few years, but the trial uh, the the settlement costs continue to soar, and you're seeing a bunch of of cases settled uh, late in the day, which means the the losses for ICBC have piled up higher than usual. That will change after April 1st, but as I say, there's a court decision eventually that will come on this. and may put us right back to, to square one and uh, having big accident claim uh, settlements.
1: Hmm. Vaughn, uh, Mr. Eby certainly not endearing himself to his uh, profession. Um, <laughs> lots of lawyers are angry at him over this, but I mean, uh, sure, uh, legal costs are something you need to address. Uh, there's an issue there, but is it solely the issue? I mean, when we talk about all of this bleeding at ICBC, is it solely within the legal realm or no?
2: No, there's a whole bunch of reasons, and, and I think that's why you're seeing a multi-pronged attack on this. I mean, it's encouraging that the accident rate seems to have leveled off, but treating injuries and settling is still very, very expensive. Uh, legal bills are still very, very expensive. Uh, fixing a modern state-of-the-art automobiles is expensive. So I think They are going to have to continue to press forward on all fronts. And the other thing is, it wouldn't be surprising if, in the rush to get all the legislation and all the procedures in place, uh, the government ends up losing a couple of rounds in court before it can settle out all this. I think in the long run, the attempt to cap settlements and legal bills and pay out for minor injuries in the long run i think it will be upheld by the courts it's been upheld elsewhere but it wouldn't be the first time that the first stab at it the government got it wrong and had to fix it so uh... this uh, is going to take this struggle is going to continue for some time to come
1: there's two things in this argument that seem to be finite for this government they're not going to wade into the privatization argument and they're not willing to go down the no fault route yes. if this fiscal bleeding continues are they going to be put into a corner to crack open one of those two conversations keith <laughs>
3: Well, yeah, I think, um, and I think it's likely the no-fault one. I mean, ICBC is is like a, a sacred child for the NDP. They created it. The Barrett government—it's one of their crown jewels uh, of uh, the Barrett government. It's a legacy that they—they they were the first province in Canada to have uh, public auto insurance, and it's—it uh, was a great uh, shining jewel for years. Now it's become a real headache. But I can't see the NDP abandoning. Uh, the public sector, public-owned auto insurance model that they were the creator of. It's more like they they went to the no-fault problem in the 1990s, and uh, uh, it was uh, quite a bruising battle. Uh, They lost it, ultimately, as the lawyers put up a really effective defense, but that may be where they're headed this time. If they can't right the financial ship with all these measures that are coming, and keep in mind, there is another huge change coming in September when the entire rate structure is going to be flipped on its head, and uh, a lot of people are going to be paying a lot less for auto insurance, but a lot of people are going to be paying a lot more for auto insurance because of their Driving record. Uh, this is a this is a story that's not going away. It's an issue that's not going away, and it's going to become, I think, a, a key election issue. I look for the BC Liberals to start raising the private auto insurance idea uh, as an election um, ploy. Maybe not an uh, outright promise to bring in private auto insurance, but certainly put it on the table. Because I think by the time the next vote comes around, the ap- the anti ICBC f- fervor amongst the public, I think, will be pretty high. Mm. I think. Uh, the Liberals are going to try to tap into that.
1: Yeah, and uh, to you, Vaughn, I mean, uh, I know Mr. Eby likes to talk about getting ICBC to a place where Saskatchewan is now. They have no fault. Uh, and the other side is uh, the Insurance Bureau of Canada is doing a full core press here to raise the privatization issue, as is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and others.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm told that if you just take your particulars, uh, the kind of vehicle you have in your driving record, and go on to the websites for auto insurance companies based in Ontario uh, and get a quote, you to find that you'd pay less for auto insurance there. Now, you can get huge arguments about this, and, and there are huge arguments. But it, it, if it were clear-cut that private auto insurance is cheaper and less painful politically we would have it because for most of the life of icbc the government of british columbia and the auto insurance monopoly have been in the hands of right-wing parties the socrates and the bc liberals they talked about privatization they looked at reining in costs at icbc and creating competition but icbc has survived all of those challenges so Uh, in opposition, the Liberals may start telling us they're thinking about privatization again, but if it were really clear-cut that privatization was a good thing, the Socreds or the Liberals would have done it, and politically, they never dared to do that.
1: We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I do want to touch on this because it's one of those things that's just not going away. Uh, and it's another fire where, where more fuel keeps getting dumped on, thanks in large part to, to the great work by Sam Cooper, and that's money laundering. Um, the public appetite just for justice here is sky high. We're getting more and more allegations every time we turn around here. Uh, Keith, what does the government do?
3: Well, you know, I invite you to read Vaughn's column today because uh, there. I think there's a lot of um, ignorance about public inquiries out there. People think it's a magic solution, a magic wand. Everything's going to be solved. Everybody's going to testify. All our solutions are going to be there because everybody's going to be subpoenaed. And there's a lot more to this thing than just uh, uh, what people think. It's a it's a complex matter. I think a public inquiry will likely be called by David Evie and the government after. The uh, certain a couple prosecutions take place, and after the uh, the German report, the next uh, report on real estate uh, is completed. But having said that, I don't not sure it's going to accomplish much. I think everybody's going to get a lawyer. Nobody's going to testify. Uh, it's going to ground to a halt, a procedural halt. That's what we've seen in other public inquiries, and I think uh, I think that's what we're going to see in this one. The there's, there's public's clamoring for one, but you know the the public clamors for stuff that doesn't necessarily understand what, it, what it's all about. And there's, public inquiries have so many legal roadblocks and challenges to them that uh, I think when one is called, and one will be called, I think, by Mr. Eby, uh, I don't think it's going to accomplish a heck of a lot.
1: Vaughn, you made the point uh, that Mr. Eby uh, needs to get off the fence here. I know both him and the Premier keep kind of saying, well, we're not closing the door on this thing, but, you know, there's pros and there's cons. Uh, Do they need to commit one way or the other and do it soon? Yes.
2: Yeah, they should stop playing this game of maybe we will, maybe we won't. Having said that, look, a public inquiry is like a great, big, very expensive trial, except... It cannot lay criminal charges against anyone, and it cannot convict anyone of a crime and send them to jail. So if people think this is a way to get people thrown in jail, it doesn't work. The other point that EB's made, and I think this is valid, is many of the agencies and regulators that are involved in having missed the boat on money laundering and not done as much as they should are federal. Well... A provincial inquiry, jurisdictionally, cannot investigate federal government agencies. It would need to be a joint inquiry of the province and the federal government, and then you ask yourself, in a federal election year, would the Trudeau government really want to be presiding over a public inquiry here in British Columbia?
1: Well, one of the things about politics in this province is, on Wednesday, I thought, I don't know if we have enough for three segments. On Thursday, I thought, I don't know if an hour is going to cut it. <laughs> uh, and it certainly didn't. There's lots more to talk about, but we're fresh out of time. guys. Uh, Always a pleasure. Thanks so much.
2: Okay, bye-bye.
1: Take care. There we go. There's Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. I will take a quick break here on Radio NL, and on the other side we'll set the stage for bargaining between the teachers and the province, which is going to start soon.
0: Local news now. Radio NL, 610 a.m. and Radio NL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL.
1: Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Very soon, a new round of contract negotiations will begin between the B.C. Teachers Federation and the provincial government, represented at the table by the B.C. Public School Employers Association. Uh, welcome to the show, the B.C. PC Board Chair, Alan Chell. Uh, Alan, why don't we start off by uh, discussing where we are. Uh, my understanding last I touched base with uh, with either side was that uh, negotiations were going to begin in around the family day uh, long weekend. Uh, give me an idea where the two sides are at now, and if you can, uh, when negotiations actually Will begin uh, in this new round of contract bargaining.
4: Well, you're right, Shane. Um, We're scheduled to exchange proposals uh, starting the week of February the 18th. And what we're doing right now is we're having some preliminary discussions just to sort of set ourselves up for success. And by that, what I mean is we're talking about uh, things right now, such as uh, protocol, the process for exchanging proposals, uh, just some sort of the etiquette, I guess you would call it, around bargaining. So we're having a few days of preliminary talks, that when we get to the week of February 18th and exchange proposals, we'll be ready to get going full speed into collective uh, bargaining.
1: Okay. Um, Obviously, uh, this is the the one union where uh, there's a lot of limelight on bargaining discussions and have been uh, in the past. Um, Any idea, sort of, once you get the ball rolling, uh, how long the sort of first round of bargaining could potentially go? Is it just sort of an endless thing, or do you have an idea we're going to bargain for, you know, three weeks, four weeks, a month, whatever the deal is, or no?
4: Well, I think both parties are very motivated to try to get a deal by the end of the school year when the collective agreement actually expires. That's June 30th, uh, 2019. And so to that end, we've committed uh, over 50 days to the bargaining process. And we're both going into there thinking we've got a lot of work ahead of us, uh, but that's our goal to try to be, uh, get done by then. And um, other than a sort of a two-week uh break over the spring break period and that's um the bctf has an agm at that point and um so we're both going to take the two weeks off other than that we're scheduled to meet uh normally three or four days a week uh from starting the family day week as you say till the end of june and and we're both there to get a deal
1: alan give me an idea of sort of what the objectives are from the employer's side as you go into talks and, and sort of what the goals are
4: sure And so um, I would say, the, and and I think everybody would say that the main issue that we're going to be facing from both parties' perspective is that with the Supreme Court decision that took place in uh, November 2016, what the Supreme Court of Canada did is restored language that was removed from the contract, and that language specifically revolved around the issues of class size, non-enrolling teachers, and class composition. And so that language has been placed back in. And when it was placed back in, that was uh, the intent was we honoured the Supreme Court decision. We put it back in knowing that uh, it had been out for a period of about 16 years and that there were going to be a lot of challenges with restoring the language. But again, to honour the decision, that's what was done. And so now what happens is that we've had a period of about 16 years where it hasn't been uh, utilized. It's been used for the last two school years and what we need to do is say as we move forward, what's the best way of uh, working with um, those issues to make sure that we address them from both the perspective of teacher workload and, and what's best for students.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be a big one, I mean obviously uh, yes. bargaining is always very complex, uh, wages and all that kind of stuff, but um, I think the class size and composition is going to add a level of complexity in this one because uh, there's a lot of things that you guys are going to have to dive into that that may be hard to, to figure out. Do you do you agree that's going to be a fairly complex aspect this time around or no?
4: I would say it's the most complex set of bargaining that either party has ever experienced. Because these are very critical issues, and they haven't had the ability to be bargained since um, 2001, 2002. And when you go that period of time without being able to bargain, you know, education has evolved in terms of um, the curriculum, in terms of uh, how classrooms are organized, how supports are provided. And so we've gone a period where... If there had been a collective agreement, things would naturally have progressed over time and evolved. And now we're going to have to sort of fast forward from where it was and where we are now and sort of jump over those intervening years in terms of how do we um, make sure that we have the best way forward. So it is very, very complex.
1: Um, on the wages side I know that uh, the province has a mandate in bargaining and I know the teachers are talking a lot about things like pay equity and stuff like that Uh, are you going into this with a provincial mandate that's been applied to other unions or no
4: yes and so when we bargain under the Public Sector Employers Council the provincial government sets the um, a mandate and that's for things like uh, what the wage increase will be, um, some sort of additional money that the parties can negotiate as to how to best spend. Um, but there's been a lot of settlements already achieved under this uh, public sector mandate and so um, the reality is, is that that's uh, the mandate we're working with and, um, and that's where we'll have to find the settlement is within the mandate.
1: And I know from talking to the Teachers' Federation, Alan, they're they're hunting for something along the lines of a three-year deal. Does that jibe with your side of the table or no?
4: Yes. Uh, it's, I think it's no secret when you look at the unions that have already settled. It is a three-year mandate, and so we're on the same page there.
1: Alright. Um, uh, these particular sets of negotiations, I mean unlike other, uh, other bargaining groups, um, yeah, there, there's certain amounts of limelight, certain amounts of news stories that get generated when other bargaining units go to the table, um, but this one is, is historically been, you know, has a lot of news attention, there's a lot of posturing in the media, there's a lot of sort of drama around it. Does that complicate things when you go into it or are you guys just put all that aside and you're bargaining at the table?
4: Well, I think one of the reasons why our sector's had a lot of limelight is because education is something that everybody cares about. Everybody understands if they have children, grandchildren in schools, it's important to everybody. So that's the first reason it's in the limelight. The second reason I would say it's in the limelight is that when you look at a collective agreement, some of the most significant terms and conditions are things like the workload, and there hasn't been the ability to negotiate that for a considerable period of time, so that's been sort of a pent-up uh, circumstance that we've been dealing with at the bargaining table in the last 15, 16 years. So that's created to the, added to the uh, complexity of the environment, too. So what I think both parties would, in an ideal world, what we would do is we would just work hard at the bargaining table, try to stay under the media limelight, and try to find a settlement that we can all come forward and say, yeah, this makes sense.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, although, I'll, I'll admit I'll be working hard to make sure you do stay in the news media headlines. But <laughs> each to our own roles, I suppose. Uh, Alan, uh, I've heard from both sides, and you just said it a minute ago, the pressure's on to get a deal done before the end of the school year. That really doesn't leave you guys a whole lot of time here, uh, especially with the complexity of the class size and composition. Is your confidence high that, uh, that you guys can work under this fairly tight timeline and get to a conclusion before the school year? year ends or do you anticipate this is likely going to go into the summer months if not into the new school year?
4: I'm I'm optimistic and um that's our goal and I think we have a lot of time set aside to do it. We've got, you know what's happened is that the language has been restored. This we're into our second full year school year of having it restored. And so both parties have had a chance to say, hey here's what's working, here's what's not working. So when we get to the table, we'll have informed discussions saying um, we think we can see. Uh, here's the challenges. Here's the opportunities, and let's find a mutually satisfiable way to move forward. So. I'm, I'm an optimist, but that's um, but that's my approach to
1: life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I guess my last question is, and I know I've talked to you about this uh, probably uh, in the past, a month or so ago, if I remember correctly, but uh, the BCTF was pushing for an early start to talks. So they wanted to get going in the fall, no later than December. Uh, again, this is going to be a complex round of bargaining. You guys have a tight timeline. W- why, why the wait until just now? Why not jump the gun and get going in October and November?
4: Okay. Um, first of all, we are starting early. Um, we're scheduled to, uh, required to start by March 1st and we are starting a few weeks early and as I mentioned, we're having preliminary discussions now. The main reason is that um, the municipal election that took place on October the 20th and school board, BC Public School Employers Association, the school boards are the employer and with the municipal election in October, uh, we had a 46% turnover in school trustees around the province And then BC Public School Employers Association just recently had our annual general meeting on January 23rd and 24th. And so in fairness to recognize the um, sort of the new makeup of school boards uh, around the province with all that turnover, what we did is we have a two-year bargaining process that has led us to... The formulation of our objectives and what we needed to do is at our annual general meeting go over that in considerable detail with our our members and say is this something that we're all going to support going forward and so we weren't in a position to even confirm our objectives until after our annual general meeting which was just two weeks ago and so now that we've got those confirmed now we're fine-tuning our proposals, costing our proposals, and uh, so that when we get to the table, the week of Family Week, we're going to be there to be as productive as we can be.
1: Uh, Alan, uh, it's going to be an interesting round of bargaining. I don't envy you the job ahead, but uh, we'll see how she unfolds, and I hope you guys do reach a, a timely deal. But again, we'll have to see how uh, how things unfold this time around. Thanks for taking some time this morning. Really appreciate it.
4: Thank you, Shane.
1: That was Alan Chell. He's the board chair of the BC Public School Employers Association, representing the provincial government. At the table when bargaining begins very soon with the BC Teachers Federation. And that's it for this week's Inside Politics. Thanks to Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, and Alan Chell for joining me. We'll see you again here on Radio NL next Friday.
0: 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Ebola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM, local news now.